say a thank you to my colleague, Paul Tremblay, who's a professor at BC Law School for his uh, assistance and input. We've worked together on several things over the last six years. And I just want to say thank you to Paul. So at this point, I will start with the presentation. And first thing, Doug, if I'm not scrolling, let me know. The uh, usual disclaimer uh, that what I have to say is not necessarily the views of the Supreme Judicial Court or the Board of Overseers, and that for some things, um, there's no official policy in Massachusetts, nor has there been any formal disciplinary decision. So some of this is just uh, what we believe is correct, but there's no case law I can necessarily point you to. I have tried to include citations uh, for the most part. So first of all, one of the things that confronts legal services lawyers is the issue of competence. Um, you provide services across a broad range of topics, immigration, bankruptcy, foreclosure, landlord-tenant, family law, domestic relations. And some of these are very complex, uh, particularly immigration, and require a special body of knowledge so that uh, you are in dangerous waters, particularly in things like immigration and bankruptcy, where mistakes are either irremediable or can have dire consequences. And while competence is required by Rule 1.1 of the Rules of Professional Conduct, it's even more essential in area where these can have dire consequences. Um, if you lack competence in something, you are ethically required to obtain assistance of someone who is competent. So the first question that often confronts people is, who is your client? Uh, and this is not often uh, an easy one or a clear one, uh, particularly in a family situation. Uh, you can have a situation where you start off representing one person and it expands to family members or even a class of people such as other tenants in a building um, because of the potential for conflict of interest when representing persons um, with whom there's a conflict or persons who are not generally aligned, it's essential to ascertain who is or who will be your client. And also rule 1.2 requires you to pursue the lawful objectives of your client, um, which may require some investigation if you wind up with a group of clients. So what is the scope of representation? Um, the rule requires that you determine and tell the client what the scope is of your representation. What is it you're going to be handling for them? Um, you can set reasonable limitations on the scope of the representation with the client's informed consent. And this allows you to limit the representation to, among other things, what you're competent to handle. Um, but you may also want to limit the scope of representation to avoid future disputes with the client about what you are doing to going to do or not going to do, which uh, can be uh, equally or even more important. Uh, it also allows you later to represent someone who might otherwise be in a conflict situation with a former client, uh, because if you ended the first matter and limited the scope of it, you can argue that they are unrelated to the prior representation and so there's not a conflict. So what do we mean when we talk about pursuing the lawful objectives of the client? Rule 1.2a requires that you pursue the lawful objectives by reasonably available means. And Rule 1.3 requires that the lawyer act with reasonable diligence and promptness 
to represent a client zealously within the bounds of law. Um, and it's important to remember that when representing a client, uh, that representation does not constitute an endorsement of the client's political, economic, social, or moral views or activities. Obviously, criminal defense lawyers uh, aren't there advocating for the crimes that their clients are charged with. Uh, but nevertheless, you should consider whether the pursuit of a particular matter is at odds with the position of the legal service organization or other clients. And we'll spend a fair amount of time talking about positional conflicts and other kinds of conflicts. So even when, to that point, even when there's no direct legal conflict or danger of creating a precedent that's adverse to other clients, um, you can have a positional conflict. So why are there conflict of interest rules? First of all, to ensure the professional independence of the lawyer, and second, to assure the clients that their trust in the lawyers are well-placed. Uh, conflict of interest rules are basically risk avoidance rules. Um, in fact, most of the rules talk in terms of a substantial risk that the lawyer's representation of a client may be materially impaired or adversely affected or materially limited. Um, so they're risk avoidance rules. The other thing is that there are imputed disqualifications where because a lawyer is disqualified, um, another lawyer in the same firm or legal services organization, sometimes even space sharing, um, is disqualified. And that's to protect client confidentiality and to promote the lawyer's duty of loyalty to the client, to the uh, clients. Um, I think there are six basic types of conflict of interest. I think other people may have viewed it a little differently, but I'll tell you what I think they are. Um, the concurrent conflict between two current clients, conflict between a current and a former client, between a current client and a potential new client, uh, between a former client and potential new client, uh, between a client and a third person or group of persons, and between the client and the lawyer's own interests, whether those are personal or professional or ideological. Uh, and we'll talk about those later. Um, in addition, for legal services organizations, there may be a conflict between the clients, that individual client's needs, and the goal of the legal services organization for social change, for law reform. And this is one of the things we mean by positional conflicts, which we will talk about in more detail. So some of the basics about conflict of interest. So even though legal services lawyers are often the lawyers of last resort, because the clients have no money or they can't go elsewhere. Uh, many, uh, but not all of the traditional conflict rules apply to legal services entities. In fact, comment three to rule 1.10 has a specific reference to lawyers employed in, the, in a unit of a legal services organization constitute a firm, but not necessarily those employed in separate units. Um, so just to give you an example, South Coastal Legal Services has two or three branches. Um, and so the one in Brockton may, can be considered to be separate from the one in Plymouth. Um, but all the lawyers in either one of those offices essentially are lawyers in a firm uh, for the purposes of the Rule 1.10 analysis. So as a result of this, um, representing one person in one matter may later result in disqualifying the entire LSO from representing others in another matter. So for example, you may represent somebody in one thing and now you've got a divorce case 
between two eligible clients and you may have a disqualification issue. Um, there are ways to address this, which I will talk about. So types of conflicts. We talked about this, let's go through them. 1.7a prohibits a concurrent conflict between two clients at the same time where their interests are directly adverse to one another. Um, there are other kinds we'll talk about. So 1.9a is the conflict with a between a current client and a former client. Um, and here the conflict can be consented to in writing by the former client. Whereas concurrent conflicts cannot uh, generally be waived. Um, and then as we talked about in the prior slide, rule 1.10 imputes disqualification of the lawyer to members of the lawyer's firm or legal services organization. So concurrent conflicts of interest exist if um, the representation of one client uh, is directly adverse to another client and, or I should say, or, or there is a significant risk that the client representation of one client will be materially limited by the lawyer's responsibility to another client, former client, third person, or whatever. So, um, you have a conflict of interest, you can't represent both sides of the versus. Um, so let's suppose a husband and wife come to you, they've agreed to a divorce, they, there's no child custody issues, they've divided up the property and they say, we don't have any money, we want you to represent both of us in the divorce and the answer is you can't. You can't represent both sides of the versus. Um, and just some lawyer humor, um, sometimes lawyers are so antagonistic between one or the same firm, you know, well, we don't have a conflict because we don't like each other anyway. Ethical issues in joint representation. So you have to analyze these for potential conflict of interest. And if it's a litigation matter, you probably have to, to revisit it throughout the course of the representation. Um, and if there's a potential for a conflict, it has to be waived in writing and has to be based on conform, informed consent. Um, and I would suggest the rule doesn't specifically say this, but it's a good idea to recite in the waiver what information you provided. You know, when you go to a doctor's office or go to a hospital and have a procedure, they have this long, uh, uh, consent form, they tell you everything that can go wrong um, and what they're going to do. Well, it's a good idea uh, because that way they have documented that they have given you, they've obtained from you informed consent because right there in writing is what it is they've told you that you've consented to. So um, another issue involves obtaining, sharing, and using confidential information. Um, and if there are going to be any restrictions about this, these also have to be agreed to in writing. So what are some of the foreseeable problems? Well, you can have, you may have consent issues involving indigent clients and you have to be particularly careful not to overreach and to ensure that there's an adequate disclosure of all the relevant facts when you're seeking a conflict waiver. You have to be particularly sensitive because usually the legal services organization is the client's only option and the client may be afraid that refusing to give consent um, will result in the client being denied the only representation that is uh, potentially available to them. Uh, so um, there has to be some um, delicacy sometimes 
uh, in some of these issues involving informed consent. Um, now, obviously, some uh, conflicts can't be waived, and the standards are more relaxed for legal services organizations. But um, you obviously, as I said in the prior slide, you can't, and the clients can't consent to um, a conflict against one another in the same litigation, even if they are indigent. So other potential ethical problems with multiple clients. So rule 1.8 requires informed consent for information to be, to be used to the disadvantage of the client or the advantage of third persons. Uh, interestingly enough, it doesn't require that this informed consent be in writing. However, if the situation arises, you should get it in writing because otherwise you won't be able to prove that you obtained the informed consent. I don't know why the rules written that way, uh, but um, every other thing uh, they seem to require that the uh, consent be in writing and this one should be too. Uh, rule 1.7 on concurrent co conflicts has two comments, comment 30 and comment 31. They presume that the lawyer won't withhold confidential information from one client that's relevant to the common representation. Um, but what if one person doesn't want all such information to go to one or more other people? We'll talk about that um, in a little more detail. Um, the other thing is that the rule requires that client confidences be maintained after the end of the representation and not used against the client. Uh, there's a number of provisions about this. But what if one person wants the information uh, and wants to use it against another? And what happens uh, in terms of consent? And can that consent be revoked after the fact, after they've given you the information you haven't disclosed? And then somebody says, well, that information that you got from the other client, I want it. And the other client says, well, no, I don't want you to give it out anymore. Um, and uh, that's an interesting issue that I don't think has been litigated in Massachusetts. So future conflicts can arise, obviously, between multiple clients, you know, family members to joint clients. Um, and one of them claims the, the lawyer now can't represent one against the other. Um, and so the question is, can this be waived prospectively? Um, and if the, client, the conflict arises because of one person's conduct or change in circumstances, can the lawyer's representation survive a motion to disqualify? And are there any ethical issues on this? Um, or if one client's consented to dual representation, can they then revoke it? So usually this is not a problem when you've got family members. Um, you know, you can have an aggregate settlement, um, for example, uh, on, on a lease dispute um, with a, a landlord. Um, and again, people can um, consent to this. And normally, family members are aligned because they have the same interests, such as not getting evicted. But conflicts can arise in a number of situations. Um, criminal conduct by one family member, such as drugs or other criminal conduct, which could be grounds for eviction. So, um, you know, the classic is the parents who have the drug dealing uh, son, and under the um, lease, they can all be evicted. Um, and so there's a conflict now between the family members not wanting to be evicted and what do you do with the information about the son's criminal conduct and is there a conflict between the parents and the son? Um, other kinds of 
conflicts could come from intentional uh, misconduct, such as inability, uh, ineligibility for um, the subsidized housing uh, or other lease um, violations and situations where respondeat superior um, don't apply. So when representing multiple people, um, you should ensure that their interests are aligned. Um, and the comment to rule 1.7 says that common representation is permissible where the clients are generally aligned in interest. And note that they're allowed to have some difference in interest among them. They don't have to be 100% aligned as long as it's on the issues involving the gist of the representation. Um, as with everything else in conflicts of interest, uh, you should put it all in writing. Um, who you're representing and who you are not representing. What you're going to do if conflicts arise and you should tell them that you cannot assist them in resolving a conflict between them. And you may have to withdraw if that conflict persists or can't be resolved. And then you also need to put in writing uh, about the confidentiality or lack of confidentiality of any information. What can be disclosed to whom, what can be withheld from whom, um, if that is an issue. So communicating about conflicts. First, you need to determine and understand the conflicts from your perspective. You need to get all the information you can to clear the conflict, see if it can be cleared then you either confirm or deny or, or decline the representation. And if you're going to go ahead with the representation, afford, obtain those uh, waivers or consents in writing, and you need to communicate the conflicts to the people who are going to be represented. And you need to communicate the conflicts to the people who are not going to be represented. And sometimes you have to go through an analysis. All right, let's see, client A is related to client B, C and client B is related to A and C. And then you need to clarify for the clients exactly what is going on. So you get the information you need to clear the conflicts. Who's expected to be represented? What's the scope of the representation? And you should explain to them what it means to be adverse to one another when everyone's happy and everyone's willing to consent to the um, waiver of the conflict. Um, then the point I made before about confirming or declining representation, put it in writing. And if you're accepting re uh, representation, define clearly the scope of the representation in writing. Um, and that's actually required by the rule. Um, communicate with them the scope in writing the scope uh, before within a reasonable time after commencing the representation. Save it. Save the document. Don't just rely on the fact that you have it in a sent folder um, and, and didn't retain a copy of it uh, elsewhere. So there are several steps that a legal services organization can take in avoiding future problems. One is to use an engagement letter for each matter that clearly describes what is and what is not within the scope of the representation. Obviously, this doesn't apply to hotline calls, but things that go beyond that um, it's a good idea. Um, when you're representing a client in a specific matter and it's concluded, then send a letter to the client saying that the matter is concluded and the representation is over. This is particularly important if you represent a client in a series of different matters 
um, you need to know which ones are ongoing and which ones have been concluded. The failure to, to say that the representation is over may lead to a conclusion or an inference that the representation is ongoing, even when you haven't handled anything for the client. So uh, if there's a past client that you've handled several matters for, it's a good idea to have a letter go out every year saying, we're not representing you on anything anymore. Um, and then you also should consider um, an advanced conflict waiver agreement. Uh, we'll get to this. Um, and also an accommodation client, we'll get to that also. Then we should, uh, your agreement should say who is the accommodation client and who is the primary client. And we will talk about that um, in more detail also. So waiver of future conflicts. Um, this, the SJC has said that lawyers have an obligation to anticipate reasonably foreseeable conflicts. This involved a corporation where, closely held corporation where there was a situation involving the officers and directors who were also the only shareholders. Um, and not surprisingly, a conflict arose uh, in that situation. So the court said they should have anticipated this. Um, so an accommodation client or what we call a secondary client is one that the lawyer represents either in a nominal capacity or as an accommodation to uh, a long established or, or just even an existing primary client. This could be a family member um, or a tenant who did not sign the lease would be the accommodation client uh, representing the leaseholders, um, say the parents and, and then the accommodation client could be the son um, and we'll go back to this fact pattern again. Um, so when taking on the representation of one person as an accommodation, you should have an engagement letter that indicates that the second person is an accommodation client or secondary client and that they acknowledge this and that they acknowledge that if a conflict arises in the future, that they would retain separate counsel and that you would continue to represent the primary original client. This was actually a class action case that um, involved uh, representing a firm and the conflict arose later between the firm and an employee. So by having these waivers of it, you can protect your position. Now, there's nothing magical about the term accommodation client or secondary client. It just means that after you withdraw from representing the second client or accommodation client or co-client, whatever you want to call them. That person is nothing more than a former client who has waived um, any claim of conflict of interest. So does accepting someone as an accommodation client avoid future disqualification? Well, that's certainly the goal. Uh, and there was a recent Massachusetts case where that exact issue came up, not legal services, but the point is still there. Um, the firm was representing both Chang and the Winklevoss defendants. And the fee agreement stated in detail that the Winklevoss family members were the primary clients and that representation of Chang was an accommodation. And also said that Chang would waive any future conflicts that might exist um, by virtue of the lawyer's representation of both Chang and, and Winklevoss. Um, and uh, when 
Chang sought to disqualify the lawyer who had represented him when uh, the law firm represented the Winklevoss defendants against Chang. Um, his engagement letter was contrary to his claim that he wasn't aware of any potential conflict of interest. They put it right in there and he signed it, he waived it. And so the agreement had expressly stated that um, the firm was re concurrently representing both of them, that Winklevoss defendants were the primary ones, Chang was agreeing to waive a conflict and that was it for Mr. Chang. So these are required for advance waivers like we saw in that case. Um, and they're usually upheld uh, with conditions. Um, in this case, Zatter versus Kwan, the disqualification council was reversed because like Chang in the Winklevoss case, um, he signed a detailed waiver um, and said that he was agreeing the firm could represent the other people in future disputes and he would not assert a conflict of interest claim or seek to disqualify counsel. So very much like the Massachusetts case. Um, however, there's another, these, these are both California cases. There's another case in California where the advanced conflict waiver was held to be invalid because the law firm did not disclose a known conflict or potential conflict to uh, the accommodation client. Um, you can't have informed consent if you aren't truthful with the client. So if you know something's coming down the road, you have to mention it in the waiver in order for the waiver to be valid. So um, if you know what it is, then you should mention it. And failing to disclose is lying and thou shalt not lie. So what have other states done? Um, other states are split on the enforceability of a provision that allows joint counsel to later represent the parties uh, if a conflict arises between the accommodation client and the primary client. Um, in federal court in New Jersey, they said the firm was not disqualified. Um, in INA versus Western Green in Texas, um, uh, they acknowledged that the insurance company was an accommodation client to the insured um, and that the insurance company didn't pay the legal fees, but the uh, law firm should still be disqualified because there was no provision in the Texas rules um, allowing a pro forma uh, or accommodation client. Maintaining confidentiality. So rule 1.6 requires that the lawyer maintain confidential information um, unless the client consents or disclosures impliedly authorized or may be permitted under the rule. And um, different states have different provisions uh, under this. I'm giving you the Massachusetts version of this rule. First of all, uh, to prevent certain death, bodily injury or wrongful incarceration for another, you can disclose confidential information to prevent that. You can disclose confidential information to uh, prevent criminal or fraudulent act um, that's likely to occur and otherwise cause injury. Notice it doesn't say by whom. So this could be an act by a client or a non-client. Um, the uh, example, for example, is a spouse um, to uh, rectify or prevent or mitigate harm caused through the use of the lawyer's services. In other words, 
somebody's done wrong using your services, um, and then you can make a disclosure to um, correct or mitigate that. Uh, obviously, to defend yourself in charges against you, either ethical or malpractice, um, and to the extent required or permitted by a court order. So uh, if the court says you have to disclose, then generally speaking, um, you can um, disclose because the court has ordered it. Um, and uh, the latest uh, addition to the amendment of this rule was to do conflicts checks or resolve conflicts. Um, so sometimes you have to disclose a certain amount of information to know whether or not there's a conflict uh, situation and um, that is uh, permitted. So, um, and um, you can also disclose confidential information to get ethics advice um, from uh, somebody. So more about confidential information. Um, what is it? It's um, information that is gained during or relating to the representation. In other words, the client doesn't have to give it to you. Um, you can, it becomes confidential if you found it out as a result of the investigation, whatever it's sourced, doesn't have to come from the client. And so it can either be information protected by attorney-client privilege, but confidentiality is broader than attorney-client privilege because it also includes something that's likely to be embarrassing or detrimental to the client if it's disclosed. So again, now these are two different things. Being embarrassing to the client is how the client feels. Detrimental is how um, somebody else um, treats the client. Um, or if the information is something that client, the lawyer has agreed to keep confidential. What it does not include is the lawyer's legal knowledge or legal research or information that's generally known in the community. Um, now, generally known does not mean findable. Uh, and this is important. So for example, a client's disclosure of a conviction in a different state a long time ago or a disclosure of a secret marriage, those would be protected if a matter, even if they're a matter of public record, because it's not generally known to the local community. Um, another example is a client's disclosure of infidelity to a spouse, um, although it would not normally be um, uh, if the client publicly discloses it or if it's in the media. Remember, in the media is the issue, um, publicly known, not, not findable. Um, and two lessons in Massachusetts, one of them is Frank Arthur Smith. So Frank Arthur Smith was representing um, certain family members in an impounded care and protection matter. And you know, those, are auto those are automatically protected. Um, and he posted on a public Facebook page about the case he was handling. There was no evidence that anyone other than the parties were able to identify themselves from his postings, um, which shall we say were not complimentary. Um, but he violated Rule 1.6a by revealing confidential information that was embarrassing to the client. Um, and the point is that no one else figured out who these clients were. They, they recognized themselves in the post and that was sufficient for it to be a rule violation and result in a public reprimand. So what do you do when a client intends to commit a crime? And a shout out to my friend, Jeff Purcell. So 
the lawyer for the day at Greater Boston Legal Services met with a client who was being evicted from his apartment since he was fired from his job as a maintenance man. Remember, if you were getting your apartment as a result of your employment, then the usual landlord-tenant rules don't apply and you can be basically kicked out. So in the course of discussing his options with the legal services attorney, a client told the lawyer that he intended to burn down the building with people in it. Um, and he thought about this for a while, what he could and could not do. And ultimately he told the, the lawyer told the police of the threats. And the police went in the next day, they found incendiary materials, um, uh, containers of gasoline and several uh, bottles with wicks attached. This is in the tenant's apartment and the smoke detectors had been disconnected and gasoline had been poured down the hallway. So obviously his assessment about the risk of serious bodily harm, injury or death or property damage was correct. The client was arrested and prosecuted. So is there any ethical problem for the lawyer? Uh, why or why not? And if so, what is it? Well, the lawyer did the right thing for two reasons. First, under Rule 1.6b1, he could properly disclose confidential information relating to the representation to prevent reasonably certain death or substantial bodily harm and to prevent the, under B2 of, of Rule 1.6, to prevent the commission of a crime that was likely to uh, result in substantial injury or proper financial harm. And second, he could disclose under something not uh, specifically under Rule 1.6, but that's what's called the crime fraud exception. So if the lawyer services are being sought or obtained to enable or aid anyone to commit or plan a crime, then that's not an attorney-client privileged communication. Uh, and so it could be disclosed for that reason. Uh, however, the lawyer is not required to testify against his client. So after Jeff Purcell did what he was supposed to do and obviously saved the lives of many people in that building, the district attorney subpoenaed him to testify against his client at the criminal trial. And Mr. Purcell filed an original action in the SJC against the DA saying, I don't have to comply with the subpoena and the SJC agreed. And that's the case. Purcell versus district attorney for the Suffolk district. So checking for conflict of interest before uh, accepting a new client. Um, if possible, um, you should consider doing conflicts checks to see if the, the client or would-be client is adverse to an existing client or former client on the same or related matter. Um, I know different LSOs do intake differently, but um, before the client even gets to talk to a lawyer, there should be uh, some intake that uh, gets the basic information, but no more than the basic information to see if there is a conflict. So you want to limit the information you get to what's necessary to check for the conflict and make sure that the would-be client doesn't volunteer information about the matter until after the conflicts check is done. Obviously, this doesn't apply to matters like hotline calls, but if it looks like it's going to be an actual representation, then uh, you should um, have a mechanism to run a conflicts check so that you don't have a problem. Or if you do see a potential problem, 
that you can address it. So under rule 6.5A, um, particularly to legal services, if you provide short-term legal assistance without the expectation that the client, um, there'll be continuing representation where neither you nor the client is expecting this will continue, um, then you're subject to the conflict rules only, only if the lawyer knows that there's a conflict of interest. So you can take a hotline call, I would suggest from somebody who's adverse. So uh, let's say you're representing a husband in a divorce and the wife calls up the hotline for something not about the divorce, then you can answer the wife's hotline question even though she's adverse to your client. Um, um, but the exception also requires that um, the lawyer knows that, all right, let me back up for a second. This also applies if you have a conflict in your office. So you've got to find out, it's not just your clients, but somebody else in your LSO is disqualified. So you basically need to do a conflicts check. Um, but if you're doing short-term work like a hotline call, um, you're going to be okay as long as you don't happen to know that there's a conflict or, the, or that uh, you or anybody else in your organization is disqualified with regard to that matter. So what this means for legal services or, or lawyers, you often provide short-term limited services, advice on completing forms, hotlines, uh, advice-only clinics, or pro se counseling without any further representation. And under these circumstances, it's not usually feasible to do a systematic screen for conflicts of interest. This is generally required um, by the other rules pertaining to conflicts of interest. So if you provide only short-term legal services, um, you have to cons obtain consent uh, in only with limited representation. And if the short-term representation is not reasonable under the circumstances, you can offer limited advice, but you also have to tell the client that uh, they need further assistance that you can't give them. Uh, so um, you have to assess the matter and the complexity involved in it and, and whether this is gonna be something that can handle, be handled briefly or if this is going to require ongoing representation and then you're going to have to uh, proceed accordingly once you make that determination. So limiting the scope of representation. Remember, you're allowed to do this under Rule 1.2a. Um, and some matters can be ongoing, but in some instances, it's sufficient to provide legal assistance on an ad hoc basis rather than continuing representation, such as eviction cases, divorce cases, debt collection. Um, so for some litigation matters, an LSO, like any other kind of lawyer, can enter into what's called a limited assistance representation agreement, LAR. Um, and Massachusetts has specifically authorized LAR agreements and um, the various courts have issued orders um, concerning LARs, the SJC, the uh, trial courts, district court, housing court, superior court. They've all got their own LAR standing orders uh, on how to Proceed, but basically, the elements of a legal assistance, a limited assistance representation agreement are the following: 
they permit the lawyer to represent a party in a non-criminal matter for a discrete limited purpose if, if the limitation is reasonable. It allows the LAR attorney to withdraw after completing the agreed upon services. And before the representation, the client gets a written agreement that clearly and precisely states the scope of the representation, both the lawyer and the client sign it. And uh, the lawyer first has to complete an LAR training and be LAR certified or qualified court approved to um, have a notice of limited assistance representation. So there are LAR programs out there that you have to take. Uh, I would suggest that given the nature of what a lot of legal services are that are provided by legal services organizations, it would be a good idea to be LAR certified so that you can have a limited assistance representation agreement with a client. And then when you're done, you're done and you can withdraw and say to the client, I'm done. We're not, I'm not representing you anymore. This matter is um, concluded. So uh, before representa uh, undertaking representation in court in an LAR matter, remember they don't have to be um, court matters, but they can be. Uh, the attorney has to file a notice of limited appearance on an approved form and serve the notice on all parties. And the notice has to state the discrete events or issues where the LAR attorney will represent the client. And you can modify this afterwards, but you need to start with having something that indicates the limited scope of your representation. And that notice of limited appearance has to be signed by the client and the attorney. And any pleading filed in the course of the limited assistance representation must state on the signature page in bold, this is from the rules, attorney for so-and-so uh, for the limited purpose of whatever, that court hearing. So uh, the, the lawyer assists the client in preparing something the client will sign and file. And there has to be a notation that it was prepared with the assistance of counsel. So when the matter is over, when it's done, then the lawyer files and serves a notice of withdrawal on an approved form. And it goes to um, everybody. Um, it's a good idea to file a notice of withdrawal, but the clerk will send it out anyway. Here's a trap for the unwary. If the attorney files a pleading or other document or argues outside the scope of the limited assistance notice of appearance, the court may say, okay, you've now entered a general appearance and that's the mousetrap. Uh, why do these? Well, first of all, they can avoid problems. It allows you to provide key legal assistance when and where it's needed without getting bogged down in time consuming litigation. Um, so there's the client who enjoys the free lawyer and there's the client with the unreasonable demands. Um, so let's say you have represented a client who's being evicted and the client consents to leave after six months in exchange for some forbearance by the landlord. You've got an agreement, you're done. 
client doesn't move out in six months and the client comes back and says, well, you're still my lawyer. I want you to go back. And he said, no, no, I'm done with this. And the client says, no, you aren't. Well, if you don't have an LAR agreement, the client can argue that yes, you're still the client's lawyer because the matter is not concluded. So if this is the kind of thing you want to put to bed, um, then you can best handle it by an LAR agreement that says, I'm just handling this um, negotiation for buying you six months of time to move out in exchange for forbearance on the rent or whatever. And then that's it. That's the scope of the representation. So that's an advantage that you can have and the problem you will avoid by having a, an LAR agreement. But, you know, to what extent do you have to have uh, LAR training as opposed to simply limiting the scope of the representation. If you're not going to court on that eviction matter, then you can probably handle it with an agreement. If you're gonna to have to go to court and resolve the eviction by way of the agreement to continue the example by the client six months, then you're gonna to have to have had the LAR training and entered your appearance um, in, the, in compliance with the LAR rules. So I can see distinct advantages of this and probably widespread application for a number of legal services representation matters that go beyond the hotline call uh, or help just simply filling out a form. If this is something that's gonna be more complicated than that and, it's not, and yet you don't want to have full-blown representation then the LAR, Limited Assistance Representation Agreement is a valuable vehicle to avoid getting bogged down in matters that you don't want to get bogged down in. So there are ethical issues from in withdrawing from cases. So aside from hotline calls where there's no appearance or short-term representation, such as helping somebody fill out a form, um, disqualification by a court for conflict of interest or LAR when the matter's completed, you can't withdraw from representing a client except in accordance with rule 1.16, which is the rule pertaining to withdrawals from a matter. So hotline calls, LARs, being disqualified for conflict of interest, um, then you're done. If you're disqualified, obviously the court orders you'd be disqualified, you're done. Um, if you're done filling out the form, you're done with the hotline call, you're done. But otherwise, if you entered your appearance in litigation, you can only withdraw by permission of the court. That means you cannot abandon a client, even if you think it's a routine matter, especially if, you, if it's time consuming, you want out um, in favor of a more important client or a, a client um, without the first client's first consent. So you've got this conflict problem that can ex exist here. So you have to take a look at rule 1.2a about seeking the client's lawful objectives and diligent and prompt representation and consulting with the client and keeping them reasonably informed. Getting back to what I said before, intake is important. Uh, you need to find out who these clients are, what they expect. And I also suggest you take a look at rule 1.18 on prospective clients, which we will uh, address uh, later. And remember that the court's not required to allow a motion to withdraw. Even if you say the lawyer-client relationship is broken down, there's a case uh, involves um, Thomas M. Kiley petitioner. Uh, his associate had 
hired on behalf of the firm, uh, um, I should say was retained um, by a client in medical malpractice case. Um, and the uh, associate subsequently with, uh, retired from the practice of law. Um, it, it left one lawyer at the firm, Mr. Kiley. He didn't want the case. The client uh, was engaging in various things such as communicating directly with the lawyers on the other side of the case. The lawyer said, I want out, I don't wanna represent this guy. Um, and the client said, I don't want you to go. I want you to keep representing me. And he said, I can't do this. This client's broken down and I have to pay for everything. And, and the court said, no, well, let's put it this way, um, Mr. Kiley, um, you don't have to represent the client personally, but your associate entered the, um, I should say, agreed on behalf of the firm to represent the client. So somebody else in your firm will have to represent the client. But since he was the only lawyer, that meant it was him. So you, the point of this is that just because you say to the court, the relationship is broken down, um, you can't automatically get out of a case. They'll look to see how imminent trial is and a number of other factors, such as the inability of the client to get other counsel. So legal services organizations, conflict of interest and disqualification. Because it's not always possible for a legal services organization to systematically check for conflicts, um, the rules require um, only that you're disqualified if you know that you are another lawyer in the LSO is disqualified. We talked about this a little bit before. And that's because um, the nature of legal services organizations, the service they provide, significantly reduce the conflict of interest um, because there's an, when there's an imputed disqualification, only if you know that there's a concurrent conflict. Um, they don't want to be disqualifying, or say they, the rules of professional conduct don't want to be disqualifying legal services organizations from representing the indigent. So the rules are more relaxed for legal services organizations. And unless it's up close and personal about a conflict of interest with you or somebody else that you know about, then you can um, not look too deeply behind it and avoid a conflict of interest disqualification. So there are other disqualification issues, however, for legal services organizations. Uh, first of all, you may have outside lawyers uh, working with you um, and they may participate in a short-term basis. They're not going to be precluded from working with you just because they represent a client with interests that are adverse to the LSO's client, unless the lawyer knows that there's gonna be a disqualification issue. So the, the, the private lawyer can help you out and not have to delve too deeply into whether or not there is a conflict with the lawyer's firm. Um, and it also won't be imputed. So, however, after, after beginning of short-term representation, um, they do become aware then there is a conflict. So uh, you have to be careful about how you handle this. All right, withholding information. Remember we talked briefly about having multiple clients and one client doesn't want you to disclose information to another or um, another client wants to know something that the first client has said. 
um, either during or after the representation. So absent a waiver, you probably can't say, I can't tell you or um, tell, tell the person, I, I, I agree, I won't disclose. You probably can't make those statements um, unless there's been a waiver because rule 1.7 generally presumes that information will be shared. And comment 30 says that the prevailing rule is that as between commonly represented clients, the attorney-client privilege does not attach. In other words, there's no privilege between client A and client B in a joint representation. So um, if litigation eventuates between the clients, between A and B after you've represented them, there's not gonna be a privilege as to what one told you about the other. And you have to tell the clients this. That is often scary for people, um, but it can be addressed in advance. But otherwise, if, unless you tell them uh, and get this consented to, you can't withhold information and you can't tell somebody, I'm going to withhold the information from your co-client. But the, so the clients can agree that the information can be withheld. And there's a specific comment to the Massachusetts Rules of Professional Conduct on it. Um, it's, it's kind of dense, um, but the takeaway is that um, you can advise each client that the information will be shared and that you'll have to withdraw if one client decides to use it. But in limited circumstances, you can proceed with the representations when the clients have agreed that you will keep information confidential. So it can be done, but um, it looks like from the rule that it has to be done beforehand. Now, what about using the information after withdrawal? So after withdrawal, the attorneys were required to maintain confidences of the former client and not use the information to the client's disadvantage, either for the lawyer's benefit or for the benefit of some third person or subsequent client. Um, if that's not the intended result, then it's gotta be addressed in a conflict waiver in the engagement agreement that the information's not going to be uh, maintained as confidential. Um, the former client can subsequently waive the conflict also, but that has to be, this has to be confirmed in writing. So the Virginia rule said, nah, you can't do that. Um, but in Massachusetts, I think you can. So what about alternatives to joint representation of multiple clients or defendants? Um, I'll talk about defendants uh, differently from, from, for example, a group of legal service clients as plaintiffs in a class action. So let's assume you've got co-parties or co-defendants um, and it's not the best course of action to represent both of them. They may have some conflict between them um, and the defense of one may be the liability of the other. So you get somebody else to represent the other people. Um, And this, however, raises a potential conflict, or I should say probably not necessarily a conflict, uh, under Rule 1.8F, because at least in the private sector, if the primary client is paying for the representation of a secondary client by another lawyer, um, then you've got a 1.8 problem about accepting money. And you have to ensure there's professional independence of judgment and it's not interfering with the lawyer-client relationship 
and that the information uh, is maintained as confidential. But it shouldn't be a problem uh, in the legal services world where um, payment is not going to be an issue. And so you've got some outside pro bono attorney who's going to come in and solve the conflict problem for you by representing the, the um, client with a conflict from the LSO's original clients. Um, they're doing a pro bono, then you're not going to have the situation of payment um, that may affect their judgment. But the point is that they're going to have to maintain the confidentiality of the information. So they're not your sidekick. They're your um, co-counsel uh, for a related client, but not for the same client. So they don't get to, you don't get to find out the information from that separate counsel representing the other person. When you have multiple people representing multiple clients with shared interests, you can have what are called joint defense agreements, but they don't have to be defense agreements. So they're more accurately referred to as a common interest privilege. And that's recognized in both state and federal court in Massachusetts. It's not an independent basis for a privilege. It basically, it's an exception to the um, general rule that the attorney-client privilege is waived when information is disclosed to a third party. So to qualify, first of all, the statements have to be made in confidence. They're still privileged even if um, they're made to another lawyer's client or another client, I should say another lawyer's, or the lawyer, client, lawyer for another client with some adverse um, relationship or adversity between the clients. Um, and they have to be attorney-client communications, not between the two defendants or the two clients. So if attorney A represents client one and attorney B represents client two, A and B can communicate about what each of their clients has had to say, and that's not waiving the privilege. But client one and client two cannot talk to each other um, under the, the joint defense agreement or common interest privilege, that would constitute a waiver. Um, the argument can be that it makes it privileged to outside persons. And interestingly, this complies to both attorney-client privilege and work product doctrine, which is not technically a privilege. So lawyer A can do some research and give it to lawyer B and that lawyer B doesn't have to turn it over um, just because it's not lawyer B's work product, it would still fall within the common interest um, privilege. So do joint defense agreements or common interest um, doctrine agreements have to be in writing? No, they don't. Um, there's a Massachusetts case uh, specifically about this. The problem with not having it in writing is that it can lead to a court's rejecting the claim of the scope of the agreement and what is and is not covered and what was exchanged before there was an agreement. So the agreement will create a start date for when the communications are, are um, privileged and will cover the scope of the privilege. Um, but if you don't have an agreement, um, then you may have an argument about what was covered and when it was disclosed and the court may or may not agree with you. But the short answer is they don't have to be um, in writing. So who can waive the joint privilege? Well, 
the Massachusetts state and federal courts diverge on this. Um, the federal courts say that any party to a joint agreement can waive it and disclose privileged communications to a third party. But the Massachusetts appeals court said that all parties have to consent to the waiver and disclosure. Um, so you're gonna get a difference of result whether in state or federal court in Massachusetts. Um, so what if there's a promise not to disclose? Um, well, there's not a Massachusetts case on that, but some say that there's a disqualification. I mentioned rule 1.8 before, which is fairly new to Massachusetts. Um, and that involves um, dealing with prospective clients. So under rule 1.18b, even when there's no client lawyer relationship that's formed with a prospective client, the lawyer can't use or disclose the confidential information that's learned from the prospective client, except as you could do under rule 1.9 about a former client. Um, so this means that the lawyer who has represented, who's obtained confidential information from a prospective client um, cannot take on a representation that's materially adverse to the prospective client in the same or subsequent matter uh, if the confidential information could significantly harm a prospective client. So you don't wanna get too much information from somebody until you've decided whether you're gonna represent them because getting too much information may result in your being disqualified even if you don't wind up representing them. Um, however, <clears throat> even when you receive disqualifying information for the, from the prospective client, representation in the adverse matters permitted, if they both give informed consent or if you have taken reasonable precautions to limit the information um, and the lawyer is timely screened um, and the prospective client is given notice, which is another reason to have somebody other than the lawyer do the intake at the legal services organization because then the lawyer is screened from the, shall we say too much information that's given by the prospective client. So, um, there's a, there is a workaround from the prospective client who tells you too much um, information, whether it's to, to get you disqualified or just through inadvertence or garrulousness. They, um, there is a way to avoid this and, and intake should be uh, useful in screening the lawyer from getting too much information from the prospective client who the legal services organization ultimately decides not to represent. So personal conflicts, I mean, financial, not you care about the outcome. Um, in the outcome uh, can generally result in the lawyer's disqualification. And um, the rules of professional conduct recognize that a lawyer at a firm may not be able to represent a client effectively because of strongly held personal or political beliefs. But if so, the lawyer may agree to work, to do no work on the matter. Um, and that lawyer's personal and political beliefs won't disqualify the firm or the, anybody else at the firm or the legal services organization. Um, and so if you are asked to represent somebody on a matter that you personally don't agree with, 
you can pass it off to somebody else at the legal services organization and you, and they are not disqualified just because um, you don't want to handle that matter because of your personal beliefs. Positional conflicts. Now this is a can be a major issue for legal services organizations. Besides the traditional kinds of conflicts of interest between president clients and former clients and imputed conflict uh, disqualification, um, the legal services organization may find itself confronted with other kinds of conflicts, which generally called positional conflicts, but there's different types of positional conflicts. So one is the litigation positional conflict, which means taking a position in one matter for one client that may be adverse to another client in another matter. Um, the ideological positional conflict where the view or position of potential client is inconsistent with that of the legal services organization, even though the organization would, <clears throat> the client would otherwise qualify for representation by the organization. And then there's a choice of client conflict, which involves furthering the goals of the legal services organization. Uh, and that may result in rejecting a client, a potential client who doesn't fit the model um, as a representative of an intended class. You want, you may want the perfect client and you may turn somebody down because you're looking for a better um, class representative um, in that matter. So let's first talk about the litigation positional conflict. So that occurs when a lawyer or a law firm represents two different clients in two unrelated matters, but argues the opposite side of the issue in separate matters. Granted, it's more likely to occur in the private sector where uh, somebody has a, uh, a specialty in such as franchise litigation or landlord-tenant litigation. One matter they'll represent a landlord, another matter they'll represent a tenant, and one matter they'll represent a franchisor, and another matter they will represent a franchisee. So, the, but the rules have been permissive toward these um, positional or issue conflicts, but they do end with a caution that a withdrawal may be required without informed consent from the client. And as all things with conflicts of interest, it gets a little dense. Um, the mere fact that you're advocating for legal position on behalf of one client that might create a precedent that's adverse to another client doesn't create a conflict of interest. You would think that might've been the starting point. Well, I'm advocating this position here and um, that's gonna adversely affect these other clients. Um, that is not the end of the test. Um, However, when a decision favoring one client will create a precedent that's likely to seriously weaken the position taken on behalf of the other client, then you start having to pay attention to whether or not there's going to be a problem. Uh, because, for example, you can represent landlords in one matter and a tenant in another matter, and you're not going to be making new law. But if you're looking at creating new precedent, then you have to seriously consider whether or not you're going to handle both of these matters. And the, and the rule, the comment to the rule ends with, if there's a significant risk of material limitation, then absent informed consent, the lawyer must refuse one of the clients or withdraw from one or both of the matter. So you need, if this comes up, you need to go to these 
clients and say, listen, if I win this case, um, that's going to adversely affect you or that's going to adversely affect him. And this has to be a discussion that you have with people. If you're not trying to create precedent, it's less of an issue. But if you're handling the matter can create precedent that's adverse to one or another, then you have to get informed consent or withdraw. So disqualification is rare on these kinds of conflicts, but it does occur in legal, the legal services context. So the New Hampshire legal, legal assistance um, successfully represented a group of female inmates in a class action case against the state claiming that they were denied equal protection because the state didn't provide the same uh, programs and services that uh, male inmates at a male uh, correctional institution had. Meanwhile, in another case, uh, New Hampshire legal assistance represented a class of mentally retarded residents at the Laconia State School, which is called the Garrity class. And that was in front of a different judge. And they challenged the conditions and practices at the Laconia State School. Okay, so far so good. However, New Hampshire, which is essentially defended in both of these cases, offered to settle the prison class action by building a new facility on uh, the Laconia State School grounds. So that's fine for the, the female inmates in the first case, but not for the Garrity class members who didn't want a prison on the school grounds. So then the state of New Hampshire moved to disqualify New Hampshire Legal Assistance Council in both of the matters because the two classes of clients were directly adverse to one another, right? Because what's good for the, for the female inmates is bad for Laconia State School clients and vice versa. Because otherwise the, well, one could argue that the settlement offer in the uh, prison inmate uh, case should be rejected and they should find some other place to, to build a facility for them other than on the Laconia State School grounds. But putting that aside, um, the um, federal court was not too friendly. New Hampshire Legal Assistance argued that even if other counsel had represented the inmate class, the settlement would have failed because the judge in the Garrity class would have said that you can't have a settlement that infringed on the rights of the Laconia school students. In other words, it doesn't matter who's representing the inmates, there still would have been a, a settlement that failed because you can't build the prison on the school grounds. It doesn't matter who represents whom and we shouldn't be disqualified. Well, the district court accepted that argument of necessity and that said that outweighed the conflict and denied the motion to disqualify saying, well, yeah, that's the only way it can go is having legal services represent both the inmates in one case and the student, the, the disabled students in another case. On appeal, however, <clears throat> the first circuit affirmed that the New Hampshire, the female inmates rights were violated, but it rejected the court, the lower court ruling that they couldn't uh, use the state school grounds for the inmates. And it also rejected the necessity argument and reversed the district court and disqualified New Hampshire Legal Services as counsel for the inmates. Um, but it did allow the Garrity class to intervene a trial in the inmate class. So um, the state of New Hampshire, one could argue, um, 
played New Hampshire legal services by creating a conflict by saying, oh, well, we'll build this prison facility on the grounds of your other client um, for uh, who you are representing and suing us as well. And now you've got a problem. Um, doesn't seem like it's fair, but that was the outcome. Um, Massachusetts experience. So Greater Boston Legal Services brought a successful class action on behalf of all the tenants against the Boston Housing Authority due to poor conditions. This was quite a while ago, 40 years ago. Um, and a receiver was appointed because the BHA board just didn't comply with the court orders to make the required improvements. So now you've got a receiver in charge of Boston Housing Authority. And then the focus turned to tenant safety. And the receiver and a tenant class represented by, again, by Greater Boston Legal Services, agreed to an emergency eviction procedure that was adopted by the court on a joint motion by Greater Boston Legal Services as class counsel and counsel for the Boston Housing Authority. And that provided for the expedited eviction where a tenant or household member of a tenant committed a serious crime. However, in his first application, <clears throat> this was a case of evicting the, the, the Reeder family. And following what happened in the Reeder family was the Reeder's adult son who lived with them had entered the apartment of a woman tenant and slashed her throat with a knife on May 2nd, 1980, which is before the date of the adoption of the emergency eviction procedures. And the readers were members of the tenant class at the time Greater Boston Legal Services represented them and negotiated with the housing authority and they presented a joint motion to the court for these expedited eviction procedures. So the readers appealed their eviction and they challenged the adoption of the emergency eviction procedure negotiated by Greater Boston Legal Services as their class counsel and adopted by the court on a joint motion. Their son had a known reputation for violence and his presence in the household constituted a serious threat to the other tenants. There's not, that's not in dispute, um, nor was the fact that he attacked um, the tenant, another tenant, or that it was grounds for eviction under the terms of the lease. That wasn't the problem. His, the problem was his crime was committed before the, the expedited eviction policy was adopted. And the readers had an interest in opposing that uh, um, expedited eviction procedure because they would have been evicted because of their son's criminal act. So their interests were not represented at the hearing on the motion to adopt the expedited eviction proceedings. And therefore the SJC said that this, the readers were not bound by the expedited eviction procedures and it reversed their eviction. Spence, Harry Spence was the receiver. So it's Spence versus Reader uh, was the case that said that um, their, the tenants whose son was a criminal uh, did not have their interests represented adequately. So the takeaway from Spence versus Reader is that while majority of the class obviously favored the expedited eviction procedures, um, class council had a duty to represent all class members, and that included the readers. Class council is not a negotiator for a, like in a collective bargaining process where majority rule prevails. Um, and the position of the tenant subject to eviction for criminal acts was not adequately represented. In other words, the people like the readers who are gonna get evicted under this expedited procedure. 
their interests were not adequately presented to the court when the emergency eviction procedure was adopted. If it had been, there might have been a different outcome, but the point was it hadn't been presented and so they were not adequately represented. And the court concluded the Greater Boston Legal Services had a conflict of interest. They weren't disqualified, but by then readers had outside counsel for their appeal, so it obviated that situation. Um, and while the SJC held that the receiver and the court could adopt an emergency eviction procedure, in this case, the class had no right to waive the statutory requir requirement of a pre-termination hearing under statute um, of a housing court, uh, I'm sorry, um, subsidized housing. Uh, and an advance agreement to waive it was unenforceable as under pol public policy grounds. So they couldn't, they couldn't do it. But the point was that um, Greater Boston Legal Services had a conflict of interest because their class included people who were going to be evicted under the expedited procedures for which they had advocated. So other positional conflicts. Um, Clients don't always know uh, whether a law firm or lawyer is advocating both sides of an issue in different matters. Um, and if a particular case would be a game changer, in other words, it's going to create precedent, uh, it would be prudent to advise the other clients that it uh, would be adversely affected before going forward. Um, obviously, the readers are an, uh, an example of this uh, because one group, such as the readers here, may object to the to advocating that position or an opposing position. And that's even without a true legal conflict of interest. In the private sector, um, lawyers can be at risk for losing clients. But here, this the Spence versus Reader was a, a real life one. Here's another one. So in the Medicaid tobacco reimbursement litigation from 20, 25 years ago, um, each of the state's attorneys general sued the tobacco companies to get reimbursement for their Medicaid expenses. Um, basically arguing they stood uh, in parents patriae for their Medicaid recipients and the tobacco companies had injured their, their children, the, the Medicaid recipients uh, with, through cigarettes. And so they had to pay the states for their Medicaid expenses. That was the gist of the claim. The states hired um, outside counsel in doing this. Um, then other law firms were lining up to represent the tobacco companies because they were paying a lot of money to defend the Medicaid uh, reimbursement litigation. But a number of the healthcare clients of these Boston law firms, uh, such as hospitals and other healthcare providers, told the law firms, if you represent the tobacco companies, you're going to lose our business. So you decide between representing tobacco companies in the Commonwealth's Medicaid reimbursement litigation or losing us as clients uh, in future matters. And, and to the one, all of the law firms that were told by their healthcare clients that they could not represent tobacco companies because that was adverse to being a healthcare provider um, uh, declined representing the tobacco companies. So, there was no direct positional conflict like there was in Spence versus Reader, but there was, there was an overarching issue of healthcare versus uh, cigarettes. So here's one for you. Is this a positional conflict? This actually occurred. So 
there's a Texas attorney named Anthony Griffin. Um, and before Anthony Griffin entered this scene, the NAACP had won a First Amendment case uh, based on freedom of assembly of association and speech to withhold its membership list. In other words, the state of Alabama wanted to know in 1950s who was a member of the NAACP. And the NAACP didn't want to tell them because they feared being prosecuted or intimidated or harassed for belonging to the NAACP. And the United States Supreme Court said, okay, you don't have to turn over your membership list. First Amendment, Freedom of Association. Fast forward to 1993, Texas sought to subpoena the membership list of the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan went to the ACLU, said, get us a lawyer, freedom of speech, First Amendment, all that stuff. The ACLU went to Anthony Griffin and said, we want you to represent the KKK. Griffin at the time was outside general counsel to the Port Arthur branch of the NAACP. So he wasn't an employee of the NAACP, but he, he, they were his client. The NAACP objected to Griffin representing the KKK in a lawsuit. Um, he said, I'm not defending the KKK, I'm defending the First Amendment. It's the same thing as NAACP versus Alabama. They shouldn't have to turn over their membership list. Well, the NAACP fired Griffin when he refused to cease representation. And by the way, the KKK lost the cases. So, you know, where's the beef? Where's the conflict? I only work here in my spare time, right? You're the cow selling hamburgers. That was Griffin. So ethical problems with law students at a legal services organization. And again, a shout out to Paul Tremblay, who I hope is in the audience. So working at legal services organizations give law students the real world practical experience in a supervised context. Um, and there can be limitations with this, but there are also ethical problems. So who is the supervisor and who has the ultimate responsibility for the law students? Um, is it the law school clinical faculty member? Is it the staff attorney at the legal services organization? Uh, and note that Law students are practicing under SJC rule 3 colon 03, the student practice rule. Um, and therefore, one can argue that rule 5.1, which is the responsibility of supervisory lawyers, uh, applies rather than um, the rule for supervising non-lawyers. Non but the point is, who is their supervisor for the purpose of rule 5.1? Um, well, rule 5.1, requires that the lawyer with managerial authority is responsible to establish internal policies and procedures designed to ensure compliance by everybody, including the 303 law students with the rules of professional conduct. So who bears the burden of this? Is it the clinical faculty member or is it the LSO staff attorney? Um, and this raises issues involving both confidence and supervision. To what extent is the student allowed to make mistakes and learn from them? Maybe the client's expense? How invasive or hands-on does supervision have to be? Should it be? What does Rule 1, 5.1 require? And what about monitoring hotline calls? Do you have to do that to uh, ensure adequate supervision under 5.1? When a legal services organization has multiple divisions, there's a the potential for conflict of interest because the civil clinic representing a battered spouse in a divorce case while the 
criminal clinic represents the batterer in the criminal charges. So, you know, you've got when you've got multiple clinics at a law school. Um, or what about representing a small landlord in a divorce and the tenant who is suing the same person as a landlord? Um, you've got a conflict there. And what happens if one's represented by the clinic and the other one's represented by the legal services organization where clinic students work or clinic students are representing both of these people? Um, for the legal services organization, I think this means that you have to have separation of divisions. But for students, this means separate clinical faculty supervisors who may not have to be allowed to consult with one another. And, and, and it may go so far as the students can't share their experiences because what are they, what's the, in, in this example of the, the guy who's the landlord in one case and he's a divorce client in another case, um, what about um, communicating information and experience? And if law students do intake or handle hotline calls, they're exposed to confidential information, which then increases the risk of breaches of confidentiality and conflict of interest. So it's a, it's a difficult situation that people like Paul will have to handle, uh, but I can see that um, there are a number of, of situations to be uh, considered here. And, and getting back to this example of the guy who's a landlord and a one case and a divorce client in another. There's a, apart from this, there was a, a man who was represented by a lawyer uh, when the IRS wanted to get into his taxes. And so he made these financial disclosures to his lawyer. The lawyer resolved the matter with the Internal Revenue Service. All was fine, well, and good. Years later, the man's wife wants to divorce him. She goes to his former tax lawyer and says, I want you to represent me in the divorce against your former client as a tax client. The husband argues conflict of interest. He was my lawyer. I'm not consenting. And I gave, you know, obviously he had confidential information. He had all this financial information. About. The wife argues, well, it's not confidential. He had to turn it over to the IRS. There's a duty to disclose. And he had to be truthful. And in a divorce case, he has to disclose his finances. So there's no conflict in the lawyer now representing me against her, his former client as a tax client, now in the divorce where he's the divorce defendant and he's now, the tax lawyer is now my divorce lawyer. So they actually teed this up. Um, and the answer was the lawyer was disqualified, uh, even though the wife argued, well, all he did was disclose financial information and he had to disclose that anyway. Uh, and he had to disclose it now in the divorce. Um, the, so uh, that would seem to suggest that the conflict uh, and separation would prevail over the waiver issue. So something new uh, recently is the SJC's, what they called clarification of rule 1.8E, which is a rule on conflict of interest. Um, and they issued a clarification order concerning humanitarian aid by nonprofit organizations. And it's effect, it was effective immediately. And it, it clarifies, and I put this in quotes because um, this is what the clarification says. Um, when a nonprofit organization that provides free legal services or other services to indigent clients receives donations or other funding to provide humanitarian aid 
to persons in need, such as financial assistance for food, clothing, shelter, and transportation. The use of such funds or donations to provide humanitarian aid is not a conflict under Rule 1.8e of the Rules of Professional Conduct. That's what the SJC says Rule 1.8e now means. So why is this clarification needed? Because otherwise, Rule 1.8e prevents financial assistance to clients um, except for the payment of court costs and the expenses of litigation, like deposition transcripts and subpoenas and stuff. The June 10th order now says that donations to illegal services organizations that are earmarked for humanitarian aid can be given to clients and their families. Remember, it says clients or the client's families. So why was there rule 1.80 in the first place? Uh, the comment three to 1.8 E states two reasons. One is to avoid encouraging clients to bring lawsuits that might otherwise not otherwise be brought. So this sort of echoes champerty and veritary, like the powers that be write the rules and say, you know, you can't give money to these people who don't have the money to sue us because that way they'll, if, if they, if you can cut off their, their financial support, then they won't be able to sue us. So that's one reason. Um, but they also say that advancing litigation expenses is okay because that's virtually indistinguishable from contingency fee agreements and that helps ensure access to the courts. And aren't these mutually inconsistent? Well, by the way, contingent fee agreements used to be prohibited for the same reason, which is it was encouraging litigation. Now, the contingent fee agreement is considered to be the key to the courthouse door for the poor person uh, who has a meritorious case. So if you wanna say these two reasons for why you're prohibiting financial assistance, they seem to me anyway, to be inconsistent. Um, the other reason they say it's also to prevent contingency lawyers from competing for clients by offering financial aid. So if, if you're a, a personal injury lawyer and you're saying, I'll give you, I'll pay your rent, I'll give you financial assistance, you know, then you're, then they're going to say, well, that's competing with lawyers who aren't providing financial assistance and just handling cases on their merits. So we want to cut out that kind of conduct. So that's why we have 1.8e restricting financial aid. Um, makes more sense to me in, in a limited way to say, oh, well, it's to avoid giving lawyers too great a financial stake in the outcome of the litigation because it avoids a conflict of interest um, by encouraging a lawyer to settle short to protect their investment. I, I've loaned all this money to my client um, for uh, rent and other stuff uh, in addition to the case expenses I've involved in. And now I've got a someone offer uh, and I wanna take it because I wanna make sure that the client recovers and I get my money. Um, notice this applies both to gifts and loans. And historically, there's been no exception for aid to indigent clients. In fact, there's no mention of legal services organizations or pro bono lawyers in the comments or any of the uh, um, materials pertaining to Rule 1.8e. Uh, and a couple of cases, um, one said that the lawyer can't pay for the client to go for travel expenses for the client to go to medical treatment. Uh, by the way, the, the, this is, Katrina is the name of the lawyer, not has nothing to do with hurricane relief. Um, and then uh, the Nestle case out of West Virginia said it's an absolute prohibition. There's no exception for altruistic intent. There, there are other cases, but uh, you get the message here. So 
as I read the comment or the, the clarification, um, first of all, it has to be, come from donations to the legal services organization. Um, and that individual lawyers and law firms cannot donate directly to clients and their families. Um, and 1.80 provides uh, prohibits financial assistance to clients. Um, would financial assistance to family members also be a violation under the prior understanding of the rule? And if not, then why did the court say clients and their families? Right. So if, if it was permitted to give money to the family, why was it, if that was already permissible, then why does clar that clarification read that way? Another thing is the donation has to be to the legal services organization for the purpose of providing humanitarian aid. Um, arguably, the money doesn't can't come from pre-existing general funding. It was not earmarked for humanitarian aid. Uh, and then I suppose one could ask whether um, the articles of organization or other documents restrict the activities of the legal services organization. And does it say, well, you uh, can't make these kinds of donations. You can only provide legal services. Another question is, what is humanitarian aid? Well, we've got food, clothing, shelter, and transportation, but what else? Um, are utilities included in shelter? And can the money be used for phone bills or medical bills? Um, what about former clients? Can they receive aid? The, the rule seems to address current clients. It doesn't seem to address former clients. Um, and is that outside the scope of what the legal services organization is allowed to do? Um, the prior interpretation never seemed to apply it to giving money to former clients or non-clients. Uh, so that a lawyer who's representing a client could give it to a family member um, or could give it to a former client, but not a current client. Um, and what about other members of the, of the indigent local community who are never clients of the legal services organization? Does the same answer um, apply? So one more thing uh, before we leave the whole topic of legal services organizations, um, and this is probably more for the managers out there, and that is the WISP, the Written Information Security Program, WISP. Chapter 93H requires that any person or entity other than a branch of the state government that owns or licenses personal information uh, about Massachusetts residents has to develop, implement, and maintain a WISP. And it has to have minimum administrative, technical, and physical safeguards to protect the information. Uh, generally, as part of the WISP, you have to designate an individual who's responsible for it. You have to identify any reasonably foreseeable data risks and you have to protect and restrict access to both paper and electronic forms of information. So that means that everybody at the organization has to have unique login credentials. People can't have a common password. Their, pass, their, their credentials have to be terminated when they leave. And each, each computer must time after, out after period of use so that somebody can't come along and just go into a computer, somebody else's computer and get access to the information. And they have to oversee a third party service provider uh, and ensure that those providers comply with the regulations concerning the information. So if somebody's handling your information, then you've got to um, oversee them. So what is personal information? Um, first and last name or first initial and last name in combination with any of the following. 
social security number, driver's license, other state ID, financial account, credit card, debit card, with or without a security code requirement, anything that's going to permit access to um, financial information. Um, and there is help available for WISPs and here is a link to something that will allow you to download or you can just Google Massachusetts WISP regulations and you can come up with all kinds of things that will help uh, you with WISP for your organization. So any questions, thank you. I was asked to leave time for questions and I did. I will stop sharing the screen. Okay, questions and answers. I've got sharing of information. Okay, so somebody asked about um, specialty units at a legal services organization. I think the rule would say that an office of a legal services organization in one location is a firm for the purpose of the rules and that um, different departments within that one office are still the same um, law firm. And so they're not gonna be able to separate that way. Um, if an attorney represents an injured client pro bono, how should the client keep case documents? Um, I'm not quite sure what you mean by this. Are you asking about confidentiality uh, or what? But obviously you, um, you need to um, make sure that the information is secure. Um, you can have it electronically, you have it stored in the cloud that's considered to be uh, secure um, as long as you have the requisite um, provisions about um, security such as the computer timing out and, and secure access and so on. Uh, <clears throat> with respect to notifying the client of the scope of the agreement is done in writing or an engagement letter, you can put it in the engagement letter. Uh, you can do it in a separate letter, but I suggest that you um, do it in writing and sooner rather than later. Um, and for example, um, suppose you, the example I gave before of the negotiating um, a grace period for a tenant to move out and then the tenant wants to continue fighting afterwards. Um, if that agreement says that I'm just representing you for the purpose of negotiating this exit agreement, um, that should be you know, upfront and beforehand um, so that you don't have the client saying, well, you represented me, so now I want you to keep representing me and, and do other things for this and everything else. So I would suggest sooner rather than later and in writing. Our LAR requirements, <clears throat> LA agreements required or just a suggested good practice? Well, I, they're not required, right? You can, you can represent a client uh, and for example, in litigation and then seek to withdraw but um, otherwise you're in for all, all purposes if you enter an appearance. If you wanna enter a limited appearance, then you have to have an LAR agreement and you have to be LAR certified and do it that way. So if you are only in for say, you're, you're the client's being evicted and the only thing they really need you for 
is to handle the eviction hearing or your cl the client's getting divorced and all they really need you for is to negotiate the separation agreement. Yeah, you're gonna need an LAR for that. Um, if an attorney represents an innocent client pro bono, how long should they keep case client documents? Well, we've got new rule 1.16a um, on that, which I will defer to, um, but basically you can, you can destroy them after uh, six years, but you have to keep anything that has ongoing continuing um, value. So if you represent a pro bono client and you draft a will for them, you can't just throw it out after six years. Uh, and if you've got anything involving a minor, you have to keep that until it no longer matters. Um, I'm assuming the LSO doesn't do criminal cases, which would be in a, a different situation. Can ethical screens be used at a legal services organization to, um, to avoid uh, imputed disqualification? Yes, yes, you can. That's the whole point of screening, right? Is to make sure you don't wind up with somebody who uh, is going to create a problem down the road and have you disqualified from someone you don't want to be disqualified from because you did not screen properly. There's no time limit on keeping confidential information. Um, Lizzie Borden, the law firm that represented Lizzie Borden in her murder trial in the 1890s still exists and still has Lizzie Borden's documents and still won't disclose them because Lizzie Borden died without heirs, so there's nobody to waive the attorney-client privilege for Lizzie Borden's documents. So that firm in Springfield will apparently maintain those documents in perpetuity or until the law has changed. Is, a written, is it written in a rule or opinion where an imputed disqualification applies to LSOs only if there is concurrent uh, conflict of interest and the LSO have checking procedures all right, yes, I, I, I gave you the, the rule. All right, how do I reconcile them? The rule says one thing, but best practices goes beyond that. Um, you get cert a certain amount of slack as a legal services organization. Um, you're doing the hotline calls. You're doing the lawyer for a day. I'll, re I'll, I'll look over your installment sale contract. I will tell you this, you know, and you're gonna need legal, you're gonna need something beyond this, but yes, you've got a problem or, uh, or I can make a phone call. Um, Going beyond that, now you're outside of limited representation. Uh, the, the point is that the rules give the legal services organization a limited amount of slack in not having to do complex checks. I, it's not my matter of reconciling them. It's the rules allow the legal services organization some slack because of the difficulty in doing full-blown conflict checking each time you get a hotline call or a lawyer of the day uh, situation. Paul, question on screening. It's important to note that <clears throat> it is important to note that screening only works for laterals with former clients, not for 1.7 conflicts with existing clients. Paul asked me to point that out to you. That's screening the lawyers, however, not screening the clients, but yes. I 
think that's it for the questions. Um, Doug, have you gotten any other questions besides the ones that I have seen? Um, it, it looks like a couple have popped up in the chat. Um, for instance, I see our LIR agreements required or just suggested as a good practice to follow. Yeah, I think I, I think I addressed that one. They're not required, oh, okay. but but they are they are definitely good practice, particularly if you if you want to limit the uh, representation, either going into court and arguing just the uh, uh, at the eviction hearing or negotiating the um, resolution of the termination of the tenancy or just handling the separation agreement and not having to try the divorce case. Um, so to those extent, they would be required. Thank you, Jeffrey. And it looks like one more just popped up in the Q&A. Um, as a matter of, as a practical matter, don't all lawyers use screens or screen lawyers off even in concurrent situations of all clients consent? I'm, I'm not trying to speak to how every legal services organization works. So I can tell you what you should be doing. I can't tell you what everybody does do. Yes, they, they should be screening uh, to make sure that if you're gonna take a lateral situation, uh, that there's no conflict. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that with a legal service organization where you've got a limited defined client base, it's not the same problem that lawyers have in the private sector. Um, and I, I, I think the rules do the same thing. They make certain assumptions about the client base of the legal services organization. If the question is about um, an outside lawyer who's volunteering at the legal services organization, yeah, the lawyer needs to know whether the lawyer's law firm represents the uh, apartment building, uh, the landlord that the legal services organization is suing um, on behalf of a class of tenants or, or something like that, failure to provide adequate security, whatever. So, uh, it, you know, as with all matters, conflict of interest are very fact intensive and you, you really need to know all the facts before you can answer a conflict of interest um, case. I apologize, but that unfortunately is the reality of conflicts of interest the analysis is the very fact intensive. So I think that's it. Paul, do you have anything else? Lauren, I, I know we have two um, professional people also uh, um, standing by to add some other questions. So I'll just reach out to them if they have anything else, but it doesn't look like it. I guess that means Paul agrees with my analysis on rule 1.80 also. And again, thank you to Paul for his assistance. Well, thank you very much, Jeffrey. Um, that was a very informative program. And thank you to everybody who attended today. If you have any questions, um, please reach out to me at dnewton at bostonbar.org. And with that, I hope everybody has a good day. Thank you. Bye.